Well, let's return to our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We come to chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. And I'm going to try to stand on my good leg. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the great gifts of God is food. There are some, believe it or not, one of them is my son, who look at food merely as a means of staying alive. It is fuel to keep you going. But I think most of us are grateful for the blessing of food. But it's not just the food that we're grateful for. There are other blessings that are closely connected to the food itself. We never need a reason to eat good food. Holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, Weddings, funerals, graduations, Tuesdays. We love to celebrate. And when we celebrate, food is often at the center of it. And the reason food is such a blessing is not just the food itself, but what happens around the food. It's 
the laughter, it's the fellowship. Table fellowship is a great gift from God. And Jesus was a big fan of table fellowship. In the Gospel of Luke, we often find Jesus going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. How would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came. The Son of Man came preaching the word. The Son of Man came to establish the kingdom. The Son of Man came to die on the cross. There are several ways in which the New Testament completes that sentence. Mark says that the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served and give himself a ransom for many. Luke, in chapter 19, says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You've already seen in Luke chapter 7, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The first two of those gospel statements are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve. He came to give his life a ransom, to seek and to save the lost. But the third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. So put it all together, and this is what you have. When Jesus came to fulfill his mission to seek and to save the lost, he came eating and drinking. This morning we see one such occasion. In fact, what we find here is the last such occasion. At least it's the last time in Luke's gospel that Jesus sits down to eat with the Pharisees. He will, of course, eat with his disciples at the Last Supper. The Last Supper, chronologically, is not far off, although Luke will relate a great deal of Jesus' teaching between now and then. But as Luke writes his gospel, this is the last meal that we see Jesus having with anyone but his disciples. And it's here that we see a typical difference between us and Jesus. When we ask someone over for a meal, we typically don't give a lot of thought to the purpose of the meal. We sit down to table fellowship, and there are some things that are a given. We want to fill our bellies. We want to enjoy the company. If we think of anything deeper than that, we might say we want to build relationships with the people we're sitting down with. When Jesus sits down to eat with the Pharisees, he has a much more specific purpose in mind. You'll remember I just asked you to complete the statement, the Son of Man came. Scripture makes the same kind of statement in a different form. Instead of the title Son of Man, Mark, for instance, uses Jesus' proper name. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching. Jesus came preaching. See, Jesus was a preacher. Jesus was a teacher. In fact, Jesus teaches pretty much everywhere he goes. He's always got a purpose for what he's doing. When it comes to people who are not Jesus, that can be a serious problem. 
Sometimes you run across someone who has a strong gift of teaching, and there's no off switch on the gift. In our previous church, now so many years ago, I was on the pastoral staff. We agreed to go and serve there while the church was still in the midst of their search for a new senior pastor. And not too long after we arrived, they called someone to that position, and this guy was a teacher. He was so much a teacher, in fact, that it was almost impossible to carry on a normal conversation with him. I don't just mean that he really, really enjoyed talking about scripture and theology. I mean, that's me. If you want to talk about those things, I'm right there with you all day long. My wife has the stories of burnt dinners on the grill to prove that. But this wasn't that. This brother didn't have conversations. He had classes. And every interaction, no matter what you thought you were talking about, it turned into a class. Now, here's the difference between Jesus and my old friend. Jesus taught all the time, but no one ever thought it was a problem. Because Jesus could teach, and while he taught, you knew that he saw you. This old friend, God bless him, loved Jesus, but you always came away with the impression that it didn't really matter whether he was speaking to you or someone else. The object of his discourse was easily interchangeable. But when Jesus taught, he taught people. He saw them. He knew who they were, and his teaching was geared to those to whom he was speaking. And this passage demonstrates that so clearly, because here in this passage, Jesus speaks to three different groups. Well, two groups and an individual. And everything he says is tailored to a specific entity, a specific audience, a specific group or individual to whom he is speaking. Let me show you that, and then we'll go back and we'll look at what Jesus is doing here. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Luke is very clear. Who is Jesus speaking to? The lawyers and the Pharisees. But jump down to verse 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. So now his audience changes, and so does his subject matter. And then in verse 12, he also went on to say, to the one who had invited him. Now Jesus is speaking to the host of the party. Now, let me introduce what may be a couple of new words into your vocabulary. Some of you may already be familiar with them. The first word is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics refers to the science of interpretation. When I come to the text, I translate it, I examine the context, the grammar, the meaning of words, the historical and cultural background. When I seek to understand the meaning of the text, I'm doing hermeneutics. And of course, the ancient joke attached to this term is that when you speak to someone about hermeneutics, they ask, Herman who? A similar word is homiletics, and for preachers, this is the next step. Homiletics refers to the art and science of preaching. Once the preacher has done his hermeneutics, 
How does he then communicate what he has discovered in the text to his audience? And so homiletics involves the preparation and delivery of what one has discovered in the text, and a big part of that concerns how one structures the message. Now, ideally, what the preacher should be doing is following the structure of the passage, and depending upon the passage, that may, to some degree, be easier or more difficult. It doesn't get much easier than what we see in this passage this morning. When it comes to homiletics, this is what we call a ready-made outline. It's the kind of thing that preachers love to see. So we're going to go ahead and use Luke's outline for the message this morning, and we're going to ask three simple questions. What does Jesus say to the lawyers and the Pharisees? What does Jesus say to the dinner guests? And what does Jesus say to the host of the party? As we begin to look at the passage, one of the things we need to realize going in is that this seems to have been a setup from the very start. The place had been carefully chosen. It was the home of a prominent Pharisee where he and his guests could observe Jesus firsthand and then bear testimony to any and every transgression they might be able to trick him into. Now, of course, they're going to fail, but that was their intent. Also, the dinner party was scheduled on the Sabbath. If you're a lawyer or a Pharisee, then you already believe that Jesus has violated the Sabbath on several different occasions. We've already seen this in the Gospel of Luke. And in addition, and most conveniently, there just happens to be a sick man present. A man suffering from dropsy or edema. And this is referring to a man whose torso was swollen by the retention of bodily fluids in the stomach and chest cavity and his connective tissues, all of which would indicate the onset of organ failure. So this man was very sick, probably terminally ill, and yet here he is at a party. You put all that together, and it's pretty evident that what seemed like a simple dinner party was actually a trap. Which shouldn't surprise us, because that's what the Pharisees have been trying to do all through Jesus' ministry. But of course, Jesus will not be trapped. As always, Jesus is the one who is in control of the situation. It's not the plotters and the schemers. And so the very first thing we see is... What Jesus says to the lawyers and the Pharisees. They're trying to trap him, but Jesus confounds them with a single question. You see it there in verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? If they said yes, then they would cause themselves to appear hypocritical regarding the stringent measures they required for Sabbath observance. But if they said no, they could be accused of being inhumane and uncaring about human suffering. It was one thing for the Pharisees to condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. It's quite another thing to take responsibility for allowing a needy, suffering person to continue in their suffering. 
So realizing that Jesus has again turned the tables upon them, their only response was silence. Verse 6 says they could make no reply to this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply. This must have been an amazing spectacle. Because the word healed here means completely healed. Fluids dissipated, organs healed, swelling gone. But what strikes me about what Luke says here is that he doesn't say much about the healing. Jesus performs this incredible miracle, this incredible sign, and all Luke says is, Jesus healed him and sent him away. It would seem like that kind of event might require a few more words. So why does Luke pass over it so briefly? It's because that wasn't his point. That's not what Luke wants to communicate. He's done that time and time and time again. We know about Jesus' miraculous power. We know Jesus can heal the sick. We understand that. Luke has given us all kinds of examples of this. But here, this is not Luke's point. What Luke wanted to focus on is the entrapment of the Pharisees and Jesus' response to them. And what Jesus says next, after he asks that question, what he goes on to say in verse 5 makes them even more speechless because he gives them that comparison. Here's what you would do for your own son and even for an ox. Are you not willing to show the same compassion for this suffering human being? Their Sabbath regulations allowed them to rescue their animals. So to forbid the deliverance of humans would have meant that they treated their animals better than people. These are leaders in Israel. And yet, the people at that dinner party were lost. In their keeping of legalistic minutiae, They neither loved God nor their neighbors. None of them would make it into the kingdom unless there was a radical change in their spiritual disposition. And one of the things Jesus is doing here is pointing that out to them. He goes after their souls. What Jesus is doing here is what we do, I trust, When we share the gospel with people. First thing we need to do when we share the gospel with people is to show them their sin. Because if they don't recognize their sin, there's no gospel. There's no good news unless they know that there is bad news. 
And so Jesus is pointing this out to them. And even as Jesus is dealing with the lawyers and the Pharisees and healing the sick man, he is also observing everything going on around him. And what did he see? He watched the heart of man manifest in the behavior of the guests at this party. He watched as the dinner guests all make their moves for the seats of honor. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had ridiculed the Pharisees for their love of place. He said back in chapter 11, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and now they are publicly proving him right. And the truth was there for all to see, despite all their God talk, despite all their religious posturing, this was a selfish, self-seeking, ambitious bunch. Selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of the self. And that's what Jesus saw going on here. They each assumed that if they did not get the chief seat, the meal, regardless of how good the food may have been, would have been a failure. They were there not only to trap Jesus, but also to be seen and to seek to elevate themselves above everyone else. Jesus was not one to allow such opportunities to pass. And so he now turns from the Pharisees and the lawyers to address the dinner guests at large. You see this in verses 7 through 11. Jesus began with some seemingly prosaic advice. But it's drawn from an Old Testament proverb. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7 says this, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So what Jesus is doing here is coming right out of the Old Testament. Jesus gave some very common sense advice to the guests concerning what not to do. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Singing to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. And so in this little story that Jesus is speaking, the guest arrives early, surveys the dinner arrangements, chooses the most prominent place in the room and ceremoniously seats himself. He loves it. All eyes are upon him at the front of the table. And he feels good about himself. He likes that people are noticing him. He imagines what excellent and respectful thoughts the others must be thinking about him. This is going to be a great 
meal. And all the guests' eyes do seem to be staring at him. This is even better than he hoped, but then something changes. He feels the presence of someone nearby. And he looks up, and there's the host hovering over him. And the host leans down, whispers into his ear, asking him to move so that someone else more distinguished than he can have his seat. And everyone's eyes are still on him. But it doesn't feel as good as it did a moment ago. He realizes now that the gaze of the guests is not one of respect and admiration, but rather it's the gaze of pity. He's humiliated and there is nowhere to hide. Pride has made him an object of ridicule. In verse 10, Jesus moves on to the application of the story. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Now, on one level, this is just simple Social wisdom. But it's more than that. Our Lord was not concerned that his hearers merely learned to take the lower seat so that they would avoid embarrassment and then achieve high human honor when they were ostentatiously ushered to a better seat. Jesus hated the pride that pretends to be humble. What he's doing here is imparting an eternal spiritual principle that will be evident in the end when everything is made right. Jesus stated this as an immutable law. It's an axiom of the kingdom. In verse 11, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what God does in Christ. He humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. Here in verse 11, will be humbled, will be exalted, are what New Testament scholars call theological passives. It is God who does the action. God humbles and God exalts. We do not do it ourselves. It is his personal work. And he will see to it. That in each individual case, the proper thing happens. The one who needs to be humbled will be humbled. The one who needs to be exalted will be exalted. Jesus will make the same point later in chapter 18 in the contrast between the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men or even like this tax collector over here. And the tax collector himself who prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And on that occasion, Jesus said this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the tax collector, rather than the other one. Two men, one whom the world would look upon as a 
dirty, rotten sinner. And one whom the world would look upon as one who is respectable, one who ought to be honored, one who ought to be held in high regard. And Jesus says it's the dirty, rotten sinner who went down justified and not the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus used this axiom again in reference to the scribes and Pharisees as a prelude to his seven woes against them in Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And nothing has changed. What Jesus says on all of these different occasions is just as applicable in our own day. Just as penetrating, just as appropriate, because today, as then, it's still not believed. Washington doesn't believe it. Politicians don't believe it. Professional athletes don't believe it. Business executives don't believe it. Has Wall Street ever advertised executive positions as especially available to the humble and lowly of heart? Of course, the question is, do we believe it? (laughs) The truth is, even we who name the name of Christ are sometimes ambivalent about this. We loathe the pride that we see in others, but do we see it in ourselves? Because it's here. The only difference is that we think we're being more subtle about it. See, the trick is to get into the prominent seat without appearing to try. To get there protesting all the way. We need, to, we, 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 we need help to combat that innate pride. We need God's help. And he will help. He has promised he will. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. At the proper time. His time, not your time. Well, Jesus isn't done yet. He has one more thing to say, and it's directed toward his host. You see, in verse 12, Luke writes, And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. It's a little rude, isn't it? 
here you are at this party, you've been invited, and you look directly at the host, the one who invited you, and you say this. Because you know everyone else who is there, save perhaps the sick man who had been healed, falls into this category. They are his friends and brothers and relatives and rich neighbors. That's who he has invited. All the other lawyers and Pharisees, all the other people of influence. This guy would never have considered inviting anyone who was beneath his station to his home for dinner. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is doing here. He's, 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 he's not discouraging normal hospitality with family and friends and loved ones. Jesus regularly accepted invitations to those kinds of gatherings. He ate with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. What Jesus is against is limiting our guest list to family members and friends who are able to repay us, who are able to reciprocate. What Jesus is against is inviting people so that they will then in turn invite you. What he's against is inviting people solely for what they can do for you. That's the issue. (coughs) The penetrating point Jesus is making is that one's social ethics show whether one is a member of the kingdom. Elitism indicates a selfish, proud, shriveled soul. If we don't reach out to those who cannot possibly benefit us, then we need to ask ourselves about the status of our own hearts. Jesus went on to be very specific about the proper guest list. Verse 13 and 14, he says, When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the first mention of resurrection in Luke's gospel, by the way, though it is regularly assumed. The payoff to the generous host is immense. He will be resurrected as one of the righteous at the end of the age, and he is blessed now. Now, don't take that too far. Jesus is not proclaiming a gospel of works. He's speaking in the same way he speaks when he proclaimed the Beatitudes, for instance, and the Sermon on the Mount, and speaks of the, the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. That's not Jesus talking about the means by which you enter into the kingdom. It's Jesus saying, listen, if you are a member of the kingdom, this is what you will be like. And he's doing the same thing here. His reward 
was long ago prophesied by Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, we read this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He will shine forever in the kingdom of God. So the scribes and Pharisees tried to trap Jesus that Sabbath day. But the two penetrating questions that he asked reduced them to a frustrated silence. He mercifully reached out to those proud social climbing status seekers. He pulls back the curtain upon their motives, upon their hearts. The guests rushed for honor, but everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He reveals the heart of his host when he describes exactly what was going on in this dinner party. See, everything that Jesus is talking about here has to do with the heart. The behavior of individuals, the externals that we can see, reveal that which we cannot see. And if anyone is going to come to recognize their need for the Savior, they need to be brought to see that which they might not even see. People don't typically give a lot of thought to the condition of their heart. Unless the Spirit of God is at work, revealing it to them, they're not going to bother to look. And if, perchance, they are called upon to do so, boy, we have a lot of ways of rationalizing what we find in our heart, don't we? Jesus doesn't allow for any of that. He knows each one, and he knows each one's heart. He knows what they need to understand about themselves, and he knows what they need to hear in order to change the heart that is within them. And that's what we do when we proclaim the gospel. We want people to see the reality of who they are, That's first. We want them to understand that they have violated God's perfect law, that they are under his wrath because they are sinners separated from God because of their sin. But we don't want to leave them there because that's only half the story. That's the bad news. The other half is the good news. That there is a way out. That Jesus has come and taken upon himself the wrath of God. 
And if we will turn from that sin which separates us from God, if we will embrace Jesus Christ and trust in him and what he has done on the cross and in, in taking upon himself the sin which we deserve, then everything will change. We will be forgiven. We will be restored. We will be made new. And we will be among the righteous at the resurrection. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There's the promise of God for those who trust in Christ that we will have a part in the resurrection. All that Jesus is saying here throughout this passage and so often elsewhere in the Gospels, it's really just what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, hear this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is Jesus talking about in Luke? He's talking about humbling ourselves so that God will exalt us. And Paul says, I think, remembering the teaching of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus did it. He humbled himself. And the result was that the Father exalted him. And if we are in Christ, the same will be done for us. Let us manifest the reality of who we are in the behavior that we exhibit Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Father, we are a proud people.
There's no getting around it, Father. When we look into our hearts, even regenerate hearts, we recognize that the flesh that we struggle with is always looking for pride of place. Always wanting to be recognized. But Father, your word tells us that if we are the people of God, if we are Christ's, we are not to be thinking about ourselves, but others. Always putting others before ourselves. Seeking to lift others up higher than ourselves. Not giving a thought to ourselves, but for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, putting others first. If we are going to put Christ first, Father, then we need to put others first. Help us to do it. It is a supernatural work that must take place. Glorify yourself in it, in in us, Father, as we do so. And as we see you working humility in us, Father, we will look forward to that great final day when you will exalt the humble. Father, be exalted in your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.